The Grenfell Fire of June 2017 killed 72 people. It was the worst residential fire since World War II. The first part of the inquiry into the incident concluded that the aluminium cladding was the primary cause of the rapid spread of the flames. Investigations after suggest that nearly 300,000 high-rise and nearly 550 medium-rise leasehold homes are potentially fitted with dangerous cladding. That affects over 1.6 million people. This tragic incident has sparked uproar across the nation as many grow concerned about their own home safety whilst also continuing to protest for justice for the victims of Grenfell. What has this got to do with intergenerational unfairness? Well, due to financial constraints, young people are more likely to buy flats affected by cladding and other fire safety issues. A broad estimate suggests that up to a third of those affected are in the 18 to 35 age group. This bears a great financial but also mental cost on the young. I'm Elisa Anwar and on this month's episode I'm going to be analysing the intergenerational issue of unsafe homes. So what if we ended the cladding crisis? What if? What if? What if? What if? A monthly podcast series in partnership with IF, the Intergenerational Foundation. joined by Colin Wiles. Colin is a housing consultant who's worked for local government and housing associations for over 30 years and has worked in the affordable housing sector for over 40 years. So how are we in a situation today where in the UK we still have unsafe homes? Could you maybe talk a little bit about a brief history of UK building regulation which enabled materials of limited combustibility to be fixed onto the exterior of buildings. Okay, so to do that, I probably need to go back a long way (laughs) to the uh, Great Fire of London of 1666, which, as you know, um, probably destroyed two thirds of London's buildings at that time. And at that time, London was largely built of timber framed wooden buildings um, with thatched roofs and so on. And And the fire spread across from one roof to another. Shortly after that, the Parliament passed an Act of Parliament which said that um, in future there should be proper spacing between buildings to stop fire spreading across narrow alleyways, uh, but also that buildings should be made of brick and stone in the future. And following on from that, over the next decades and centuries, there were more and more Acts of Parliament making buildings safer. And I think that continued right up to the 1980s when the government um, relaxed the building regulations and allowed uh, materials of what they called limited combustibility to be fitted to the outside of buildings. And I think that's that's where really the problems began. After the mid-80s, when the building regulations were relaxed, um, developers were allowed to fix these new materials to buildings. And that's precisely where it led to in terms of the Grenfell fire. 
because that building was fixed with um, what they called aluminium composite panels, which is a, a thin sheet of aluminium wrapped around a polyethylene core. And the idea is that the aluminium uh, protects the polyethylene from, from catching fire and therefore it's of limited combustibility. But what happened in that fire is that uh, the, the cladding that had been fixed to that building some years earlier, well, the fire breaks around windows were not very secure. So the, the, a fridge caught fire in, in one of the flats went through the fire gap and the aluminium polyethylene within the aluminium caught fire. And uh, aluminium um, doesn't start to deform or, you know, disappear below a temperature of about 650 degrees centigrade. But at, what happened at Grenfell, once the fire took hold, is that the temperatures were above 1000 degrees centigrade. So clearly all the aluminium started to melt. The polyethylene inside, which is effectively petrol, very highly flammable, uh, began to race up the wall of the building. If you if you watch film of Grenfell, you can actually see gobbets of fire burning material falling down to the ground and also the fire rapidly rising up the face of the building over the top and then down the other side. So the fire was really moving upwards, downwards and sideways all at the same time. I think the thing that I don't understand is that if we had all of these acts of parliament coming in that, you know, they were there to prevent the upward spread of fire from the exterior and then the horizontal spread of fire through the interior, like you said, through fire doors and walls and things like that. Why did we go backwards? I think that's partly a political question because at the time there was a drive towards privatisation and also cutting red tape as they saw it. So, I mean, clearly they wanted to relax the building regulations in order to make it easier for builders to build and for the, to be less uh, government, less public expenditure. Um, so part of that was that the, the old um, building surveyors were, lots of the building control units were slimmed down. Um, actually in the report, there's a comment about the uh, district surveyors in London so it might be worth just reading this out because um, there were 20, 28 independent district surveyors up until 1985 and they were responsible for enforcing the building acts in London. And there was a letter sent to the Daily Telegraph uh, just after the Grenfell fire by a former district surveyor called Terence Jenkins. And he said um, his role was as follows. This is what he wrote. The old maxim in the surface was, first, make sure it doesn't fall down. Secondly, make sure it doesn't burn down. And thirdly, use your common sense for all other matters. The fire at Grenfell Tower would not have happened under the London Building Act and bylaws. Proper fire breaks in the cladding would have been insisted upon. And, more importantly, enforced. Controlling fire spread was the foundation of the 1667 Act and its basics were still in place when I stood down as district surveyor for Chelsea in 1983. No combustible materials would have been allowed on the outside of a building. No cavities in cladding allowed to create vertical fire. Whenever politicians and accountants 
are in ultimate control of complex building matters. In place of experienced construction professionals, we will see more disasters like this one. So he, I think he's making the point that it was it was deregulation and it was also cutting costs. So he, he's really saying that after, after 1985, the regulations were relaxed and then the following decade, the BRE was privatised and all these products kind of flooded into the market. And, you know, to be fair, these cladding companies were, were persuading both private house builders and social housing providers that they were, you know, giving them a safe product that would protect their building, you know, improve thermal efficiency uh, uh, much more so than brick or concrete had in the past. So you can see why people took them up. But um, there was a fire actually in Le Carnal House in 2009, I think it was, in London, where the um, coroner recommended that the building regulations be looked at and rewritten. This was a, a recommendation because I think several people died there. And the coroner wrote to the then Secretary of State, who was uh, Eric Pickles, saying, you know, you must look at the building regulations because they're a very complex document. No one understands them. And when, when documents like that are not understandable, it allows developers and others to, you know, run rings around local authorities and other regulators um, because they're not clear. So, but Eric Pickles ignored that letter. And a few years later, we had Grenfell Tower. Why is this? an intergenerational issue it's an intergenerational issue because in the report we set out the facts about the fact that younger people younger age groups a they're more likely to live in flats across all tenures um, than older people and especially high-rise flats but i think it's also an intergenerational issue because over the last uh, 10 years or so we've had various government schemes that have encouraged younger people into home ownership. So help to buy and shared ownership schemes. All of these are mainly looking at new build properties, um, giving people equity loans, encouraging them to buy up space that they perhaps don't need in some cases. I can talk about that in a minute. Um, but certainly it's an intergenerational issue for that reason that younger people have been seduced into home ownership. And when they're buying in London, for example, and you're being offered a new build property with government support, then the, the choice is limited. Evidence more recently has shown that new build properties have a lot of defects. And in a lot of cases, these leaseholders are being expected to pay money out of their own pocket, thousands of pounds in order to replace dangerous cladding or fix fire safety measures and it's interesting because back in season one of our podcast we talked about the student housing crisis and how a lot of young people were effectively being not forced to reside but we we'll use the word forced to reside in housing that did have its problems and for me it seems very unfair because if you buy somewhere or you rent somewhere you expect it to be in at least a livable condition so why doesn't this really apply to homes? How are people getting around this? If you or I buy a property, we employ a, a surveyor, usually. Um, there's usually a, a certificate of um, uh, construction like NHBC or 
one of those brands that uh, say this property has been built to a, a good standard. Often you'll have a mortgage from a, a mortgage provider and they will have checked that the property is a good investment, you know, that it's not going to cost more to remediate the problems than it than they're lending you. So all of these things you would think are like um, a, a safety net for people who are buying, but that for some reason that doesn't seem to be the case within the property sector that suddenly you as a, an owner, a leaseholder, are, are suddenly responsible for things that you had no knowledge of. You know, I, if my daughter in, in her flat, she hasn't any idea what's behind the, um, the plaster work, you know, whether insulation has been fitted properly or you don't know what's under the floorboards or in the walls. I mean, it's or, or what's fixed to the outside of a building. You're just assuming that it's uh, that it's safe and a, a good investment. But um, so we feel and make this clear in the report that it's fundamentally unfair that people who've bought properties in good faith should be required to uh, fund the works. Other things that are wrong with the building, not to do with the cladding, they're still being responsible for, you know, like fire breaks or doors that don't fire, fire doors that don't work properly and all this kind of thing. Uh, and so that's unfair. Plus, some of these uh, leaseholders have been landed with massive uh, service charge bills, you know, crippling service charge bills for things like waking watches. So you have someone who's there on site all the time, you know, allegedly looking out for fire. Although that's not always the case. Uh, and the poor old leaseholders are expected to, you know, cough up for that work. And it, it, again, that's not really fair. As Colin mentioned, this problem, whilst impacting across the generations, is particularly troublesome for the young. Young homeowners are more likely to live in flats than older owners, and they are also more likely to live in high-rise flats. And this figure alone has risen sharply since 2015. Those young people who are fortunate enough to be in a position to buy often do so through the Help to Buy scheme. Help to Buy began in 2013, but has the scheme encouraged younger people to buy unsafe and affected homes? Well, let's break down the stats. Help to Buy is limited to an approved list of house builders. Unfortunately, the big beasts of this industry dominate the list. One of the largest house builders doesn't even have an agreed minimum standard for its new homes, according to an independent report. New build homes have been ridden with very high levels of defects and design problems compared to their older counterparts. So, for example, since 2005, the National House Building Council has been carrying out an annual survey of satisfaction within new build homes. Now, by 2018, 34% of buyers said their home had more problems than they'd expected and more than 25% has said that they reported more than 16 problems alone. This isn't to say that if you enter help to buy, you're going to acquire a defected home. Rather, we're saying that the scheme pushes the young into new builds, and it is these new builds that are predominantly affected by high levels of defects and design problems compared to the older homes. But surely you can just check the safety of your home in advance. Well, I spoke to Sophie and Danielle, who show that this isn't always the case. Sophie, let's start with you. You said to me that your current bill is currently 207 thousand pounds 
how, how did you get to this situation? Yes, it's actually 208,000, just an extra thousand pounds on top. So yeah, I bought my flat in 2017. That was the month before Grenfell happened. So obviously when Grenfell happened, we kind of went to our council, went back to our building and thought, are we actually safe here? And everything seemed to be good. And we were told it's fine. Um, and then about a year and a half after that, when issues started popping up, like the lifts were breaking, the roof was leaking, um, all of our pipes were leaking. Like there was just so many issues. And, and we started thinking like, what have we actually bought here? Um, and then obviously we started hearing about the building safety stuff. And I just thought the way that our building has been built and the issues that we're having, I don't feel like we're going to be one of the buildings that manages to, to get away with this and, and actually be safe and be built the way that we were told it was built. So then our management company started doing investigation and then we found out that it was everything possible that was wrong with the building. So we have um, non-ACM cladding, so not the cladding that was on Grenfell, but a different type of cladding that is potentially flammable. Uh, flammable insulation, missing fire breaks, missing smoke seals, missing emergency lighting, everything. And then we were told that it would be over £14.9 million pounds, um, to fix and that would be to essentially rip the walls off from the outside and start again but also from the inside and start again and needing to replace all of the windows replace what was in between the walls and in between the floors um add smoke seals add emergency lighting all of that other stuff on top of all those issues we already had like the floods and the roof and the lifts that are already costing us like 10 to twelve thousand pounds each a year so my service charge is already back and then yeah within about five days they implemented a waking watch and that cost us um which for me was like 600 pounds a month and we started saying like begging please can we do it like I will walk around at all times uh, whenever you need like in the early hours or it, like when I'm on the work calls or in my lunch break or anything I'll walk around to stop this cost because we just can't afford it that's so much money P people don't have that type of money and even the 600 pounds a month for the the watch that that's so yeah, much. that's the same as my mortgage. So it was like paying that, but then also paying, knowing that all the other costs are piling up on top as well. And Danielle, what about you? What What is your situation? So I bought my leasehold uh, two and a half years ago. And at the time, obviously th that was post-Grenfell. And so I checked with my solicitor and I sort of said, you know, what are the fire safety um, sort of guards in place um, to make sure that, my building won't go up in flames the way that Grenfell did. Um, and I was assured by the managing agent at the time um, that the building uh, met all the fire safety criteria when it was converted. So it's converted back in 2006 um, from an office block into residential flats. Um, and yeah, it was signed off um, by the NHBC, um, who essentially sign off all the blocks to make sure that they're, they're fire compliant and generally safe. Um, so I thought, okay, great, let's go through with it. I really like the flat and I want it. Um, so yeah, that was all signed, sealed and done. I moved in. Then about two to three months later, I then found out that they were going to do an intrusive survey on the building because they weren't entirely sure what cladding had gone on the building. So we had to pay for an intrusive survey to be done. Um, the results of that came back and um, we had cladding issues. Um, again, it wasn't the same, it wasn't the exact same type of cladding that was found on Grenfell, but very similar. Um, and yeah, if there were to be a fire, it would go up in minutes, apparently. We're normal everyday people um, with average salaries. 
so yeah, paying that on top of mortgage, council tax, gas and electricity, it just wasn't feasible. But I was going to ask, you know, was fire safety even something you considered before buying your property? But both of you have sort of said that you were told it was fire safe, either, you know, before Grenfell or as a result of Grenfell, you checked and then they backtracked. So how is somebody supposed to know? And you can't. And I like that's why, like I've spoken to so many of my friends who have been getting on the property ladder recently. And I try not to project my experience onto them. But I just said, like, you absolutely cannot buy a property at the moment with any confidence that someone won't turn around the next day and say, we've got another survey and it's wrong. Because even between fire inspectors, one person can say it's fine. Three weeks later, another person can say it's it's not fine. And you've got all of these different problems. Um, and some building inspectors are saying, OK, look, you've got sprinklers. It's fine. You're safe. My building, I can see the fire station from my window. They have the one of the country's tallest cranes that they sent. They even sent to Grenfell to try and help because it was one of the the best bits of kit in the country. And yet, my building is one of the buildings with the highest remediation bills. We have sprinklers. We have a fire alarm. Like I, I don't actually see with my building that we're going to ever get to a position where someone says, "Okay, yeah, this is fine. This is safe," because there's just so many different things that are apparently wrong with it. Exactly what. Sophie said um, in that I have emails from my solicitor where I've said, you know, off the back of Grenfell, can you confirm um, that the building is fire safety compliant? And I have those emails in writing. So again, people say to me, oh, well, why don't you sue the solicitor or sue the developer? Um, but it's like, I'm one person up against a massive company that turns over billions with incredibly deep pockets. I cannot go and sue them. You know, I haven't got the time. I certainly don't have the money after all the interim measures. Yeah, I mean, we've actually been through that. So we've been through kind of expensive litigation in an attempt to try and change our outlook, I guess. But in the cases where there was building control sign off, we were advised that legal cases are rarely successful against building control. Don't waste your money. And you have no consumer rights. Like, you know, if you buy a phone or you buy a kettle or you buy a car, if something goes wrong, that goes back to the manufacturer or the person that you bought it from, then you don't pay anything. You buy a house and it goes wrong and there's literally no one else who is responsible for that, which is just, it. it I mean, I don't think anyone actually realises that until you're in the situation and people go, but what about the developer and what about this? And you're like, no, I've tried. <laughs> and they're all, they're all able to just ditch it and run it and leave it behind. You know, we've talked about the financial impact, but there is the other side to it. What, what has the mental health impact been? I challenge even the most resilient person to live on the ninth floor of a block of flats, which is the floor that I live on, knowing that you've got this cladding outside. And if there's a fire in the night, you've literally got minutes to get out. It has a massive effect on your mental health, not just the financial side. It's the aspect of I could die in my home. Um, you know, smoke inhalation. You've only got a few minutes to get out. Like I'm really welled up listening to that because it's such a it's like when you hear other people talk about it um, and, and get it so spot on. It's like, yeah, that's exactly how I feel. <laughs> I'm not someone that I've considered, but I've ever struggled with with anxiety or depression in the past. But literally woke up around this time last year and just felt like this constant pressure all the time physically, like literally couldn't take a full breath. I felt like I was just always tired, like not interacting with people, not wanting to do anything. And then I reached out to my GP and got advice. And when I spoke through it, it was very clear that I wasn't feeling myself and, and it was it was pure anxiety and depression symptoms I was going through. When I've had this bill of 208,000 pounds, whatever, for now over a year, 
and never knowing when they're going to say, okay, we need that money now has been really, really difficult. Um, that I kind of watched all my friends like getting back together and, you know, getting married, moving on, buying homes, talking about how difficult it was to pick a new colour for their kitchen. And, and they're not sure, you know, what they're going to remediate next. I say remediate, what they're going to renovate next and move on to. And it's just felt, I felt trapped for years. And I've really struggled to, to a, kind of feel happy for them, which is horrible. Um, but also, like yeah you just you just don't know what your next two five ten years are going to look like so you're stuck now you're stuck potentially for five years to come and you don't know whether that is going to be jobless homeless bankrupt dead I'm in meetings I've had two meetings now with Michael Gove um and he as a person while he's listening to the building safety crisis and he's made more advances than any minister has before him in that role they don't have the answer to this they don't know what the answer is they're, they're just as confused as all of us are about how this kind of have happened and if you can't rely on your government and you're kind of saying to them what do I do in this situation like how have I been left between regulation between developers contractors insurance firms everyone like you all need to fix this problem it's not down to us to come up with the solutions but you do really start to question it's like you question society and how anything like this is ever allowed to happen um and there was a mental health study I think her name was Dr Jenny Priest um last year and they interviewed a lot of leaseholders and the main like lasting feeling was just kind of being separated from society and like the, mecha the me mechanics of society because you're like well it doesn't work for me like it hasn't worked like we've not been protected by anyone there's no legislation that can protect us there's no way we can get out of this ourselves we just have to sit here and write a blank check every now and then for whoever asks for it while some people have you know big developers that they're kind of daunted about going up against in my case there's no one there's no one there I can't even talk to a human about my building which seems crazy so it's hard to to give like one piece of advice to people but I think like I work quite closely with the end padding scandal campaign and I also founded Hertfordshire Gladiators and it's just kind of use those mechanisms to find support and find answers. So I think yeah my trust in the whole process my trust in government has been absolutely decimated it's just gone. Um, Grenfell happened in the summer of 2017 we're almost five years on now there's no way in hell a year on from Grenfell there should have been blocks that still had that cladding on it should have taken a year end of and then they should have gone to the developers the cladding manufacturers like Sophie's case if the company has sort of dissolved itself um or it was, it was an offshore um company at the end of the day the government allowed those entities to be set up in that way and I think in in those circumstances the government should pay for the remediation in those circumstances where they can't chase down the, the developer um, because, yeah, the Treasury allow, you know, the Treasury allows for offshore companies to exist. Um, so in that instance, it's the government's fault um, and therefore they should pay for remediation. It's just been so slow to get anywhere. And now we've got Michael Gove and all the signals that he's sending out are very good, but we do need the legislation in place. Um, and we need justice for Grenfell. We need justice for the for the 72 who passed away, um, mm. 18 of which I think were children. You know, that's a, that's a huge stain on, on our country that four and a half years on, those poor people haven't had justice and the families and the relatives. 
and the friends haven't had justice. I just add like with the Grenfell thing, it's so shocking to me that there's buildings still now going into planning planning in London with one staircase with fire yeah. systems that might not work. Like how have the government not gone, okay, what is the state now? How do we fix this? And how do we stop this from ever happening again? Because it seems to me that they haven't asked those two questions because they didn't stop it immediately and they haven't stopped it from ever happening again. So it's just, you know, as Danielle said, what they've been doing for the last four and a half years. The mental health aspect of this crisis is often ignored, yet has some of the most devastating, lasting impacts. A UK cladding action group survey found that out of all the people they asked, 90% said their mental health had deteriorated. 35% said that existing health conditions had been aggravated and a further 23% reported having suicidal feelings or a desire to self-harm. So, as Sophie asks, what have the government been doing for the last four and a half years? We contacted the Department for Leveling Up Housing and Communities with the issues raised in this podcast. They are yet to reply. However, in response to others on the topic, they have said that they are deeply sorry for past failures in relation to the oversight of the system that regulated safety in high-rise buildings, and they say they are committed to preventing this issue from ever happening again. Earlier this year, the Secretary for State for Leveling Up, Michael Gove, publicly warned developers that they must pay to fix the cladding crisis. He warned industry that he will take all steps necessary to make sure that it happens, including imposing solution in law if industry fails. Leaseholders are shouldering a desperately unfair burden. They're blameless, and it is morally wrong that they should be the ones asked to pay the price. I'm clear about who should pay the price for remedying failures. It should be the industries who profited as they caused the problem and those who continue to profit as they make it worse. And, Mr Speaker, we'll take action on all of these fronts. To ensure that every remaining high-rise dangerous building has the necessary cladding remediation to make it safe, we will open up the next phase of the Building Safety Fund early this year and focus relentlessly on making sure it is risk-driven and delivered more quickly. We will also ensure that those who profited and continue to profit from the sale of unsafe buildings and construction products must take full responsibility for their actions and pay to put things right. Those who knowingly put lives at risk should be held to account for their crimes. And those who are seeking to profit from the crisis by making it worse should be stopped from doing so. He's given industry a deadline of early March, so only time will tell whether this new rhetoric will translate into action. It's clear that the cladding and fire safety scandal has created a financial and mental health crisis for hundreds of thousands of young people. Safe housing is a basic human right. So what's the solution? IF has outlined several key recommendations. For example, they say that the Building Safety Fund must be increased to include every affected building. They believe that owners and residents should be fully compensated. They also think that a fundamental rewrite of the building regulations is required and that the government should put in place a national plan to ensure that dangerous cladding is removed from all affected blocks by the summer of 2022 at the latest. For more information, please head over to www.if.org.uk where the excellent report, The Cladding Scandal, A Crisis for Younger People, is available to read. 
Fighting for equality amongst current and future generations is something that we should all strive towards and is central to the work of IF. If any of the topics in discussion in this month's podcast have caught your attention, then head over to www.if.org.uk, where IF have conducted incredible research into the topic. Or follow the Intergenerational Foundation on Twitter, Facebook, and even Instagram. See you next month. What if? What if? What if? What if? A monthly podcast series in partnership with IF, the Intergenerational Foundation.